Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 262 with Carter Cast. I think you'll find this to be a powerful episode because Carter is laying out what makes a career flourish versus derail. You'll learn one, two questions to ask yourself to pinpoint your strengths and weaknesses, two, frequently occurring risk factors to watch out for, and three, two critical things that put you in the 98th percentile of your company performance. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcripts or the links to items we've referenced, it's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F262. And while there, I encourage you to check out some of our great stuff, such as the Gold Nugget email list, which summarizes insights from each guest right to your inbox. Now here's Carter's story. Carter Cass is a clinical professor at the Kellogg School of Management. Previously, he's played a pivotal role in building numerous iconic consumer brands, including Tostitos Scoops and The Sims. He served as CEO of Walmart.com, growing it to become the third largest online retailer in the world. Carter is also a venture partner for Pritzker Group Venture Capital, where he assesses potential investments and advises portfolio companies. Here is Carter. Carter, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Well, you've had some pretty cool professional experiences in your life. But what I'd like to zero in on to start is you were working to launch the computer game, The Sims. Uh, Tell us about that experience. Well, yeah, we knew just from the early builds of the game that this was going to do really, really well. People were so engaged and it was like they had their own little self that they were trying to take care of. So you could see the beginnings of sort of obsessions with the game. So it actually did not surprise me too much when we saw that sort of success there. The fellow who was the executive producer on it, Will Wright, also did Sim City, And so he's a genius. So this was his brainchild. And you know, my role was to help market it and make sure it was accessible to the public. So it was an extraordinary game back in the late, yeah, this is probably 98. Yeah. Are you, are, you a, are you a player? Or, yeah, well, you I, a player? I, did, I remember playing it back in the day. And yeah. I, I think they just kept iterating on it like many, yes. many versions. And so I think it had an earlier one, uh, but it was still rather engaging. And, and I don't know, it just sort of gets you thinking about your life in different ways. <laughs> <laughs> Taking care of this almost sentient being. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I mean, did you have any insights into your own life as you were, were watching The Sims take shape? Well, yeah. What I noticed the most was how attached, I think with time, you can become attached to activities. So you really do get invested in this game and also with the character you've created. And so I thought, oh, it's interesting. It's strange. I know this is a non-sentient being, but I'm certainly starting to, I'm feeling like it's, it's actually something that I need to take care of, you know, like an animal, <laughs> like a pet, like a cat or a dog. So when I saw that sort of, and I think it's, you know, part of it is you commit that much time to something and it becomes important to you. So it, there was an interesting psychological component to that when we were creating the game and watching him develop it. That's fun. That's fun. Well, well, so I'm excited to talk about your book in which you've sort of laid out a lot of your career lessons learned o- over time. And so tell us, what is your book, The Right and Wrong Stuff, all about? You know, the, in a nutshell, the book answers two questions. What about you could hurt you? 
What about you could actually impede your career progress? And then secondly, what do high performers, hot shots that don't derail, what can be learned from looking at them? But the, the genesis of the book was that as a professor at Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management, I'll talk to these very smart people and they'll be looking at this, you know, should I take this offer from this great consulting firm or should I go to this startup? And I'll say, well, those are two very different opportunities. And then I'll ask some typical questions like, you know, where do your passions lie? What quickens your heart when you're really absorbed in something and the time flies? What are you doing? And then I'll ask him, you know, where do you want to be in three to five years? And, you know, what are you good at? What are you really skilled at? Where do you raise your hand and always say, I got this because you have a natural talent there? And they'll answer these very fluidly. But then I'll ask them, what about you could hurt you? And I'll go, huh, what? I'll say, well, you know, what, what about what could impede your career progress if not watched carefully? Where are you vulnerable? And invariably, I would get these very sketchy or no answers. And so I started thinking, you know, the whole strengths finder, the whole, you know, now discover your strengths and focus on your strengths. It's great. But I tried to write weakness finders. You know, the flip side of a strength is some area of vulnerability that we have to be aware of. Matter of fact, 98% of people, this is a lot of research, have an overused strength that actually hurts their career. So you can be so analytical that you suffer from analysis paralysis or are overly skeptical and drive people crazy. Or you can be this great team player who actually is, has difficulty making the hard call you know, being decisive. So there are these themes of strengths hurting us and derailment propensities that we have being unaware of their potency. So I started doing research in it once I would not receive these great answers from students. And it became more and more interesting to me because I realized that companies aren't using any assessment or very few companies are using derailment assessment tools. They're using, you know, tools that help them help employees identify their competencies, but are they actually using tools that help them identify their weaknesses? And so I came to this realization that the conversations aren't being had inside companies to help people develop based on understanding where they need to improve or what areas they have to do less of that could be hurting them. So that ended up making me feel that it was, a you know, even though I'm a, I, I teach and I do venture capital for a living. I decided to try to carve out the time to, to do the research and write this book because I just thought it was a conversation that has to be, we have to surface. Yes. Well, you got me excited right now. I'm right with you. And it is, it's intriguing. It's important. And well, I, I want to dig into some of your top research findings. So maybe could you, you share when you talk about derailment, you know, what are some of the most frequently occurring risk factors to be on the lookout for? You know, I didn't know what I would find. I didn't know if there were, you know, a whole bunch of them. And I found, I interviewed, a hundred, uh, talked to 100 people, 100 people who gotten demoted or fired, talked to a bunch of HR executives and uh, headhunters and executive coaches and, and even CEOs, and looked at all the academic research. And there was a lot that has been done on this topic because... There are 360 feedback forms where you can mine the data and see what are people that are struggling, what's holding them back. And when people are doing really well in three, you know, that that are deemed in the top 10% of their organization, what are they doing really well that the people that derail don't do well? So there was just 
a ton of data on this. So looking at all the data, I found five themes over and over. And to try to make the topic more accessible and less scary, I created these archetypes or characterization. I love the illustrations. So, you know, instead of saying, oh, I suffer from interpersonal issues, you can say, oh, I have a little bit of Captain Fantastic in me. And, you know, you can laugh about it. So my attempt to make it a little less heavy as a, of a topic was by creating these five archetypes. And here, here's what they are. The first one is Captain Fantastic. And this is for somebody who suffers from interpersonal issues. So sharp elbows, the quest for the holy grail of the corner office, you know, bruising people on the way. And uh, this person either suffers from sort of over an unbridled ego or poor listening skills. And this happens to a lot of people. As a result, they have poor working relationship with coworkers. And when inevitably, you know, when the, when the performance, when they don't hit their numbers, as inevitably happens, they don't have support. Yeah. So that's Captain Fantastic. Now, what's interesting is you might say to yourself, well, you know, I don't have those Captain Fantastic uh, tendencies, but there might be an aspect of you that has under pressure a tendency that can be self-sabotaging. Under stress, they have a tendency, and the tendencies can be they move away from people. They get cautious or reserved, and they move away, or they move against people by being aggressive, like Captain Fantastic would, but they could also move towards people under pressure and be ingratiating. So these three tendencies, moving against, moving towards, and moving away, are all common behavioral traits we have when we're stressed out and under pressure that can hurt us interpersonally with other people. Okay, thank you. So that's the Captain Fantastic story. And then what's the the solo flyer and the others? Yeah, the solo flyer is very common ailment when really good individual performers get promoted into managerial positions. They get a team and they still try to do all the work themselves. All right. They are so good at what they do, they want to keep doing it. They get so much satisfaction out of being able to make that spreadsheet smoke with their analysis that they keep wanting to do it. And they don't teach the team to fish. They want to fish for their team. So they micromanage, they overmanage. Very common in, you know, one researcher said, becoming a manager is it's almost a transformation of identity. What got you here won't get you there. You have to change and you have to learn to empower and oversee and coach. And you're, you're not the player anymore. You're the coach. And that's a hard transition for people to go through. And people that derailed have a difficult time letting go of doing the work and learning to oversee the work. And one of the interesting parts of this one was that it's, you know, it's not just about overseeing the work, but your job as a manager is to build bridges into other departments where you have dependence, your team has dependencies and you need to get resources. So a good amount of your time when your manager is spent with the other functions in the organization upon whom you have dependencies, making sure that you're aligned with them and getting resources so your team can do good work. Gotcha. So that's the solo flyer and often a very good performer. So all of these profiles are people that are talented. The question is, is there something holding them back? In the Captain Fantastic's case, it's often ego and ambition. In the solo flyer's case, it's wanting to micromanage and do the work themselves. 
Understood. Okay. And how about version 1.0? Version 1.0 has gotten really comfortable in his or her routines and they're skeptical of change. So they're resisting learning new skills that they really need that will make them adaptable in the rapidly changing business environment we work in. So, you know, there might say they might have a mantra of, well, if I don't, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, you know what? You're going to have to make sure you're staying fresh. How are you staying fresh? Do you understand artificial intelligence as it relates to your job? Do you understand machine learning and big data sets? Are you getting comfortable with cloud computing? Do you understand digital marketing and social media? You know, in in this time that we live in, the importance of staying fresh and staying externally focused on these market changers is really important. And this person has just gotten too comfortable and they end up becoming a dinosaur. Gotcha. Okay. And it's interesting. And I'm, and I'm thinking in particular that sometimes the resistance to change, folks can come up with very articulate reasons, you know, why they should continue doing what they're doing. Yeah. But, justification. <laughs> right. But really, it's sort of irritating to everybody else. It's sort of like, okay, that doesn't really hold up and, and they can kind of sense what's going on. And, and so it's sort of like you're, you're outed in that way. Yeah. You know, I, I say to people where, you know, can you identify your areas of innate resistance? Where are you saying? Yeah, but yeah, but you know, <laughs> where are you automatically resisting instead of just staying open-minded, asking clarifying questions, and then saying, you know, that's interesting. Let me consider that. Perfect. So Thank you. That's, that's version. And this happens a lot of time mid-career. This is a mid-career derailer very frequently. And even into your senior level, executives who aren't staying close enough to all of the disruptions in tech, driven by technology and globalization. So the most common reasons, according to the research I did, the most common two reasons people derail are, are Captain Fantastic, interpersonal issues, and version 1.0, just not being adaptable enough to change. By the way, the change doesn't have to be changing technologies and changing environments. It could be changing circumstances like you get a new boss and the new boss ain't like the old boss. And the new boss has a different uh, modus operandi than the, the old boss. And you don't realize that the onus is on you to change to the new boss's style and not for the new boss that comes in to learn your style. And I suffered from this one, frankly. I did well under one boss at Frito-Lay and I got this new boss. And he was much more hands-on than the old boss. And I resisted that. And I ended up trying to go around him. And I ended up getting kicked off his team. Okay. Ouch. Lessons learned. (laughs) I derailed because I was not adaptable to the boss with a different managerial style than an old boss. You know, I'm curious, in hindsight or retrospect, what would you have done differently dealing with a boss who was hands-on and you didn't like it? That's a great question. I And I thought about that a lot. I should have realized that, you know, just because I was the one with the tenure in the group doesn't mean that I didn't need to adapt. The new boss coming in, even though he had less tenure than I did, he was still the boss. I should have gone to this fellow and I should have said, how can I help you get up to speed? How do you like to communicate? You know, should, do you like to communicate over email? Do you like to communicate, you know, one-on-ones? What's your preferred method? And how can I help you be successful in your role? You know, you let me know what you need me to do so you can be successful because my agenda is your agenda. And I think if I would have gone in there with that sort of a olive branch and let him know that my job was to help him succeed, then we would have gotten off to a much better start than what I did, which is I thought, you know, I'm performing well in my position. He should just let me run. 
he should just let me do my thing. And that's not, that was a terrible attitude. Okay. Well, well thank you for, for opening up on that. That's, uh, that's useful. I have a funny caveat. Okay. He found the book and he read it and he wrote me by four days ago. Tell me more. Gosh. So the, now the book's been out two weeks, right? right? And he found the book, he bought the book and he wrote me this note and it was so interesting. The minute I saw the name, I was like, oh my gosh, this is 20 years ago. I reported this guy in the late nineties. He said, thank you for your depiction of me. You were kind, which was <laughs> nice of him because he knew how I felt at the time. And, you know, so to write kind of try to write objectively, I think was he appreciated that. And then he said, I uh, appreciate your candor in these stories because your ability to be vulnerable and tell the story is going to help other people. Because so many times you read you know, books and people talk about all the things they did well and when you're writing about these things that you did poorly or you, you know, learned from, it's a good, I think it'll make it very accessible to people reading. So it was this really nice complimentary note, but also I'm going to Dallas in a couple of days to present. He lives in Dallas and he said, I'd love to get together with you. So, you know, it's the last, it's the last guy in the world I would have thought wanted to see me. That's cool. Well, you know, he's probably learned some things too, you know? I bet you're right. I bet he learned some things on how to manage just from sort of the situation we went through. So it's really funny. Well, that's awesome. Well, well, thank you for sharing. That, that's so cool. Well, I want to make sure we, we hit all five. So how about the, the one trick pony? The one trick pony is an interesting case because they are good at what they're good at. Maybe they're the controller inside of a company. They know exactly what they're doing. They've done it well, but they haven't broadened. So they don't have, you know, they haven't been on task force. They haven't taken lateral moves. And so what happens is they become so reliant on what they're good at, their sort of signature skill, that over time, unbeknownst to them, they've become one-dimensional and are considered unpromotable because they don't understand how all the pieces fit together in a business and they sort of top out. So it's an interesting derailer because one-trick ponies have great careers and be very good at something. But if they want to get to the next level, they eventually top out because they're seen as being too narrow. So, so one of the questions I get for One Trick Ponies is, well, aren't you supposed to specialize? And I'll say, yes, it's really smart to get really proficient in one area because that's your career capital. But at some point, if you want to become more of a generalist or you want to keep moving, you have to make sure you broaden. So for, for example, when I was at Walmart, I was a marketer. And my boss said, uh, hey, do you want my job someday? And I said, yes, that'd be great. And he said, well, you're not going to get it. <laughs> I said, well, why? And he said, because you only understand marketing. And to be in retail, you have to understand operations, store operations, and merchandising, bu- you know, buying, buying and merchandising, assorting the product line, pricing the product line. It's not just about demand generation of marketing. and he said, so you're topped out. And I said, well, what should I do? And he said, are you willing to take a lateral move into merchandising? And I said, yes. So I was moved into a different function. And that broadening allowed me to understand you know, the buying and merchandising and assortment side of the business. And then later on, it allowed me to have career flexibility going forward. So there are times that it behooves us to take a lateral move to get experience. And later on, that'll give us some headroom to get promoted. Perfect. Thank you. 
And how about the Whirling Dervish? You know, it's funny. I have so the Whirling Dervish. I have this assessment on my own website. So I put this. I, I put the assessment in the back of the book, so you can see which of these five archetypes is you. And I built this assessment with the Center for Creative Leadership. So it's a, it's a rigorous assessment. But I also put it on my own website just for free. You can take it if you want. So it's, you know, cartercast.com. I think it's backslash derailment. And you can take this test. The whirling dervish, the one I'm about ready to talk about, was the number one reason people in a self-rated uh, system, the number one people claim they derail. And that is, yeah, that you have trouble delivering on promises because you feel overwhelmed. So the whirling dervish is you know, running around with their hair on fire, late for the next meeting and muttering to themselves about their workload. They lack planning and organizational skills and are known to overcommit and underdeliver. And what happens is their bosses and their coworkers can't count on them to complete their assigned tasks at the time they said they can. And eventually people start distancing themselves from this person. So the whirling dervish overcommits and underdelivers and has trouble with time management, with prioritization, and with organizational and planning skills. And I the reason my theory is so much I'm seeing it so many people are claiming that they feel like whirling dervishes. I think it's because we're just all of us are so overwhelmed by technology and by you know, social media and emails and texts. I think we all just, we walk, everyone walks around feeling like a whirling dervish. So it's so important for us to prioritize, to be able to say no to things, to delegate where we can. Well, and I'm curious in terms of, first of all, so from the data perspective, so your research with the 360 feedbacks and such indicated that some of the the bigger things that came up most often, right, was that the Captain Fantastic and the version 1.0? Right. But with the, the self-assessments, is, is the whirling dervish. Do you think that's indicative of, of a newer development in the workplace or, or just that people feel stressed where they, they take your self-assessment? That is a very good question and I've thought a lot about it. I think that especially as social media is just becoming more and more part of our lives and text People are expected to respond like Pavlov's dog, you know, within minutes. And if you don't get back to somebody in an email within hours, I think actually the incident rate of whirling dervish is increasing. And I think it is becoming one of the major reasons people feel like they are derailing or they're not doing a good job at work is flat out they're overwhelmed. And so how can they compensate? How can they work with their boss to be very specific and crystal clear on their job accountabilities so they know what they're evaluated on and they can actually work with the boss to pair the list, you know, their laundry list of things they have to do? How can people be more intentional about planning and prioritizing their work? How can they say no? When one of the favorite books I read, because I have a trouble, a little bit of trouble with Whirling Dervish too. And I, my problem is I'm a pleaser. So I say yes to things. And my wife said, Carter, before you say yes, I want you to practice this sentence. You know, that's interesting. I'll take that under consideration. <laughs> <laughs> Let me get back to you. And you know, my, my bias is sure I'll, I can, yeah, we can do that. So I think the ability to be more deliberate for this whirling dervish profile 
whose eyes are bigger than their stomachs and they're full of creative energy and they want to say yes. But instead of automatically saying yes, you know, maybe you can say no with grace. Maybe you can do a five minute favor for somebody. You know, there's like this, this case came up with me. I was asked to fly to San Francisco to present to prospects who are applying to Kellogg Business School. Now, that would have been a you know two-day trip. And instead of automatically saying yes, I said, you know what? What if uh, you know, I'm so busy right now preparing for my book launch? Could you give me the names of a couple people that are really, really good candidates in my area of knowledge, entrepreneurship, and leadership? And how about I call them and talk to them about Kellogg? So that's kind of the definition of a five-minute favor. Instead of taking two days to do this, I can take two hours by calling some candidates. That's something that I need to do a better job of myself is learning how to say no, but with grace. Instead of being interviewed, what if I send you two good data sources? Instead of flying to California, what if I just call a couple good candidates? So how can you turn an ask into a five-minute favor? Beautiful. Thank you. And so I, I want to get some additional perspective then when you talk about feeling overwhelmed, inundated with expectations on social media and email and text messages, et cetera. It's like, you know, I, sometimes in, in my own experience, and I'm working with teams and, and talking with them, I've seen a number of times, it, it's almost like the, the emperor has no clothes. We sort of unmask an expectation that isn't really there in terms of, is it essential to you that someone replies to your email within four hours and say, well, no. <laughs> it's like, if I needed an instant response, then I'll, I'll probably drop by their desk or, or give them a phone call or, or whatnot. And so, so I'm intrigued. How much of the, the expectation do you think is, is real versus perceived? And, and what are some best practices for how teams and organizations can address the matter? Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's interesting because I do think you're onto something with the profile of the whirling dervish is often somebody who wants to please others, somebody who is creative and wants to be helpful. And they get themselves overextended. And that personality profile may be more likely to feel like they have to respond to every request that comes in versus saying, you know what, my first accountability is to deliver on these core objectives that I've set with my boss. And after I get those things done, I can respond to some of these other things. So I think that's an interesting observation. You know, there could be a personality component to this, which is, us pleasers are more likely to be whirling dervishes and we feel like we have to respond and not in a timely manner. But you know what? If that's not core to our job, which is how we get paid, then we should put that on the back burner. So what some of the tricks or remedies for the whirling dervishes, you know, I say this, don't work in response mode. Approach your day in segments. You set aside sacred time when you're really productive to do the strenuous intellectual work. So for me personally, I'm kind of weird because I get up really early, but my most productive time is from like 5.30 to about 9. And I try to safeguard that, you know, four, three, four hours to do a lot of my more strenuous work. And then I will turn and email and respond to others during more non-productive times. So a lot of times I'll do that in batches. So I'll say to people, don't work in response mode, responding to people every time you hear that little buzz of your text or you hear that chime of an email. Respond to people during times that you want to in batches. So maybe for an hour you do email and then for two hours you do thinking work. 
or for three hours, you have blocks of meetings, and then you go shut your door and you respond. But people that are not as productive often find themselves in response mode all day long, right. and they let the tail wag the dog instead of managing their work according to their priorities. Okay. Well, so thank you. And I want to make sure we give a little bit of attention to the flip side. What's the right stuff? Are there some universals that everyone should bear in mind to continue career acceleration? Yeah, this was actually the most, I was surprised because I thought, you know, the most fun part of the book is going to be identifying these derailers and sort of talking about them. What actually surprised me most, probably in the entire book is that People that do really well, we might think, oh, they're going to be really good at, at lots of things. They're like a decathlete. You know, they're good at running and jumping and swimming and throwing the javelin in his um, I realize the swimming isn't in <laughs> decathlon, by the way, just FYI. But what I found was that actually they're only good at a couple of things consistently. They're only good at a couple things. They are, and this is, again, mining 360s and looking at the people that are in the top quartile of their companies in leadership effectiveness, what do they do well? Consistently, they are able to build strong relationships with others and enlist others to their cause. So they are empathetic. They're open-minded. They see, you know, St. Francis of Assisi, seek to understand before being understood. Their ability to be empathetic, good listeners, open-minded, they are able to enlist others to their cause. Second, they pursue projects to completion and they take accountability for outcomes. So if they say they're going to get it done by a certain time, they stay there until it's done. They are all about driving for completion. If you have those two competencies, drive for results and enlisting others, and you know most companies have, let's say, 10 or 11, 8 to 10, 8 to 12 competencies, if you only have those two, the chances in the research that I examined, the chances are 72% that you're in the 90th percentile of your company in effectiveness if you just have those two. Now, if you add on top of it, you're self-aware. You're aware of your vulnerabilities. You are aware of your strengths. Then that's the lethal combination. You have self-awareness of where you're good and where you're bad. So you put yourself in the right position to be successful and you build strong relationships and enlist others and are good at driving for results. That's the right stuff. It isn't like this laundry list of things to be great at. It's you're self-aware. So you put yourself in the right position where you work on what you're good at and you minimize what you're bad at. You find workarounds or you outsource it to other people who are more qualified than you. You enlist others because you build bridges and listen well, and you drive for completion. That's the right stuff. That's fantastic. Powerful. You know, we talk about 80-20 a lot here, and uh, that there it is. Boom. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, it really is 80-20. This was the biggest part of the, re the, the research that surprised me the most was to find out to have the right stuff, you don't have to be good at everything. You have to know what you're good at and know what you're not good at. But you do have to be good at building relationships with others, and you do have to deliver on what you say you're going to do. Awesome. Thank you. I want to make sure we, we touch on, you have a point about you can't count on the man, and <laughs> I think that's important to hear. Yeah, this was really, really interesting. So I'm doing all this research, and I'm constantly finding that a big component of people's derailment is that they actually were let down by their organizations. Their organizations are complicit in their very derailment. It isn't only about the employee 
not performing well, the organization plays a key role when they derail. And their culpability is around four areas. One, organizations move people too quickly, especially talented people, and they don't give them broadening experiences. So you end up with the one-trick pony. You get moved too quickly, and you end up in a position, and you don't have the perspective to make in a complex situation, you don't aren't able to make good decisions because you haven't had enough different types of experiences to draw from. Second, they ignore bad behavior if short-term results are present. And this is Captain Fantastic. If you're getting results, but breaking glass along the way, they're willing to turn an eye, you know, turn their head. Third, they don't require superiors to develop subordinates like they used to. And I think this is the 1099 problem. When people are moving positions a lot and there isn't this social contract there used to be with employers, companies aren't investing as much into developing subordinates as they used to. And so the onus has to be on us to develop ourselves because our superiors aren't incented like they used to be in our development. You know, back in the old day, P&G You couldn't make it to brand manager or group brand manager unless you had somebody in your team that was ready to take your old job. And you don't hear about that as much, you know, that IBM model of development or when I was at PepsiCo 11 years, that PepsiCo model of development, it's just gone away because people switch jobs so frequently. And you mentioned in your your HBR piece, this was striking, that uh, a corn fairy study put uh, of all the competencies, and there were many, right, amongst leaders. And that they sort of ranked their how well they did upon them, that developing others ended up ranking dead last. Yeah, I mean, that was striking to me. There were 67 different competencies <laughs> that... This is the older version of four-year improvement, not the later one with fewer competencies. All 67, baby. Good for you. You got it, man. <laughs> All <laughs> Lominger finally tightened that up. But they had... 67 they'd identified and dead last, dead last in their research was developing others. By the way, this is self-reported by managers. This is managers saying, these are the things that I'm not doing a very good job of. And this was, I think, motivating others and confronting direct reports was also in the bottom 10 of what bosses and managers do well. So, you know, Developing others was last, motivating others, and confronting direct reports was also in somewhere between number 57 and 67. So, you know, you get the picture. Certainly. They're not going to help you, so you've got to do it yourself. It's like a DIY, we're in a DIY kind of career management orientation. That's what you have to have now. Do it yourself. And so you're saying, given that, go forth, ask for the feedback, hire a coach, take the LinkedIn learning course, you know, wh- whatever it takes. Yes. You've got to take the, uh, the onus has to be on you because it isn't like when I was, you know, I'm 54, when I was young, the organization would sit down and they'd have these developmental conversations and say, okay, so let's get you these experiences in the next few years to develop. Here's your profile. Here's three things you have to work on with your profile, Carter. Here's three strengths. We want to give you a chance to even work harder on these strengths to get them even better, more potent. You just don't see that as much. If you get a boss that's like that and says, you know, even though we're having this performance review for an hour, 
let's spend a half hour on the performance review, but let's spend a half hour on your development. And let's talk about three things that we want to get you to do to improve. And let's look at three leverageable strengths you have that want to make sure you even work on more. If you've got that boss, you are a lucky employee. Okay. So, um, no, so you were laying out the, the ways that uh, the companies are complicit in derailment and we kind of zeroed in on the, uh, you, you can't count on the man and, and then what to be, what's to be done about that. And uh, is there some more? Well, the other one is that they're, and it's in this not directly confronting direct reports. The research shows that managers shy away from having hard but necessary career conversations with employees. And so it doesn't, if you have this conversation once a year during performance review time, well, that's terrible, right? You need to have conversations the minute you, developmental conversations the minute you see the need to. So if your boss, the minute you, you know, the minute you finish a big presentation or you come out of a big client meeting on the way to the airport with your boss, that's the time to say, let's do a feedback session. And it can be really simple. You can say, here's one thing you did well, Jim, or maybe even start with Jim, what's one thing you think went well? And then you shut up and listen. And then you say, Jim, here's one thing I think you did well that builds confidence. Jim, what's one thing you think you could have done differently? And then you shut up. Here's one thing I think you could have done differently, and that builds skills. So this real simple feedback model, one thing you did well, you let them say, then you tell them one thing you think you did well, one thing that you think they could have done better, and then you say one thing. This on an ongoing regular cadence is the way you develop people. It's not like some once a year occasion during performance review time. Well, Carter, tell me, is there anything else you really want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and we hear about a few of your favorite things? Yeah. You know, when I've been out talking about the book and I get this question of which of these five derailers hit you in different stages of your career and which of them hit men versus women the most. And so if I would say of the five derailers I laid out early in the career, it's often solo flyer. You haven't learned to leverage your team. You haven't learned to teach your team to fish. You haven't learned to be a good manager yet. Mid-career, it's often version 1.0. You get stuck and you get complacent. And you need to find ways to jumpstart your learning curve. And later in career, it's a lot of times it's Captain Fantastic. You know you're good at this and you get overly confident and you stop having that beginner's mindset and asking for feedback. And so the whirling dervish happens throughout your career. I mean, that afflicts people whether they're right out of college or, you know, they're 50, 60 years old, you, you know, older. That one afflicts people throughout. So mid-career one point, version 1.0 often hits people with adaptability. Early in career, a lot of times it's solo flyer. Now, men versus women, the number one derailer the research showed that hurts women, and this is going to make you cringe, it made me cringe, it's being viewed as non-strategic. And I always say, well, geez, do you think fundamentally, genetically, women are less strategic than men? Well, of of course not. This, I think, is a problem with access. You're non-strategic because you don't see how all the pieces fit together. You don't have a perspective on the business that's broad. The way you get a broad perspective on the business so you're not non-strategic is by having access to senior leadership, is by being rotated into different assignments, it's by, by being put on different assignments. So this is an access problem. 
So this is where the importance of having mentors and advocates and being you know, raising your hand and being asked to be rotated on different assignments. You know, like my boss said, Carter, you know, let me put you on a new assignment to broaden you. That's the sort of opportunity that, you know, a person needs to be able to be viewed as, you know, to move past being viewed as non-strategic because fundamentally being non-strategic isn't a, it's not like a genetic, you know, people, you know, there's strategic people and non-strategic people. No, it's a, it's a problem with access access to opportunity. Perfect. Thank you. So that men versus women, then the number one derailer for men, not surprisingly, is Captain Fantastic. It's being unbridled egos, dismal listening skills, listening. By the way, that came up so frequently. Thinking you have the answer and talking too much and not being receptive to feedback, not asking for feedback. One piece of feedback I received in my home is that I needed to do a better job of simply returning stuff I didn't need. And a great solution came from Pitney Bowes. Pitney Bowes has been a legendary leader in shipping solutions for over a century. And whatever your scale, Pitney Bowes has something for you. You could weigh, print, mail, and save without ever leaving your office. On January 21st, the Postal Service increased their shipping rates. But you can beat that increase with discounts from Pitney Bowes that aren't available at the post office. The plans start at just $5 a month, and they are offering us a free 90-day trial to help find your optimal shipping solution. I've really enjoyed just how easy it is to compare shipping across different carriers. Is it better with UPS or with the post office or, or who's the best for this particular package with rate and speed needed at distance? In just a couple clicks, I can see the whole layout of all those options instead of having to log into each carrier's website and navigate over to the rate section and put that stuff all over again. I feel smart about choosing the best option that works for me and it's a whole lot less hassle. So you can visit pb.com slash awesome to learn more and try it free. They do have some terms to so check out their site for the details. It's pb.com slash awesome. And I really appreciate you taking the time to visit pb.com slash awesome because when you support our sponsors, you support my family, which means I get to keep taking the time to keep making the show. Pity Bose Sid Pro is one of my new favorite things. Now let's hear Carter's. This is so much good stuff. Oh, thank you. Now could you share with us a, a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? You know, it's funny. I think I kind of feathered the quote into what I was saying. One of my very favorite quotes is, seek to understand before being understood. And I actually look back and I think it came initially from St. Francis of Assisi, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And Stephen Covey just uh, picked it up. <laughs> he, he, picked, he picked it up. But if you go look at and we could even Google it. If you look up St. Francis of Assisi and look at his beautiful prayer, I'm going to even try to find right, it. Right, the um, make me an instrument of your peace, that one? That's it. Yeah. That's it. That's it. That's the prayer. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. When there is doubt, faith. When there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. And he says in the next verse, O divine master, grant that I not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand. And I think a lot of people have taken that wonderful prayer and repurposed it as seek to understand before being understood. Because if you do that, you establish these relate these strong relationships with people, and people then want to understand how they can help you too. So that, that begins this process of reciprocity and mutuality between people. 
and you end up having a group of people around you that are enlisted in your success and want to see you get ahead. And it's not disingenuous. You try to help them get ahead. You show interest in their career and their projects, and they naturally will say to you, how can I help you, Carter? Awesome. And you've looked at a lot of studies and research. Do you have any favorites? You know, my favorite book, it's funny. I, you know, I read so many articles and, you know, so many, I looked at so much academic research while doing this. And the Lominger stuff is great. You know, it's dense. There's just a lot of the FYI and developmental planner by Lominger. But actually, there's a book called The Extraordinary Leader. And the authors are Zenger, Z-E-N-G-E-R, and Folkman, F-O-L-K-M-A-N. They were the ones that looked at so mining, mining all these, all these 360s and finding these very specific competencies that successful people have and high performers have. And I found that to be incredibly useful. And then I would say Marshall Goldsmith, you know, who's just a wonderful example of leadership re- of researcher his book what got you here won't get you there it was wonderful in showing that as we move on and get promoted we have to let go of our old behaviors and embrace new ones beautiful and how about uh, a favorite tool something you use that helps you be awesome at your job reflection the most important thing i i think i do is in the morning I sit down with a cup of coffee when it's quiet at 5.30 and it's dark out, and I journal, and I read something that's either philosophical or spiritual or social psychology, and I reflect, you know, so it's like wisdom from the ancients or wisdom from people smarter than I, and I reflect on it, and then I journal, and I think about, you know, how do I want to model this, or how do I want to take this nuggets and bring them into the way I live and the way I behave. So for example, I'm reaching into my backpack right now. And I'm the book I'm currently reading is Anamkara, A-N-A-M-C-A-R-A. It's a book of Celtic wisdom by John O'Donohoe. And it's just this lovely book on friendship and love. And, you know, I, I find that if I get up and I immediately start my day, even before I work out or do anything, I read something that is really well written by someone that's very smart. And then I think about how I want to use that or incorporate that into my life. To me, it's a great way to start the day. And I do it every day. Even if I read for 20 minutes, it's become a practice of mine. Beautiful. Thank you. And is there a particular nugget that that you share either in the classroom or when you're coaching folks? that really seems to connect and resonate and and folks sort of quote it back to you or they spread it far and wide? Yeah, yeah, there is actually. And it's going to sound, I hope it doesn't come off wrong, but I say often in the last lecture I give in my class at Kellogg, don't worry about what people think of you because they're not thinking of you. (laughs) They're the protagonist in their own play and they're worried about their own lives. and. If you realize that they're not obsessed with what you're, how you're behaving, that actually is empowering. It gives you freedom to do what you want to do with your life or your career instead of doing what you think others want you to do. 
So, you know, another kind of companion phrase is your opinion of me is none of my business. <laughs> That's good. But I really do. I do think that a lot of times we're working. So we're so worried that we're being judged that it can stifle our creativity or make us make the certain decisions about our career based on the safe path. But it really helped me to change careers eight years ago and go into academics and go into venture capital by saying, you know what? I don't want to be a CEO anymore. And if people are going to judge me because I've moved into this less, quote, fancy career, then they can judge me. And what happened was I realized that nobody was judging me at all. It was my own misconception that people were more interested in my career than they were. They're not that interested. In, they're not that interested in it. They're, they're worried about their own hide. Certainly. That's so good. Well, Carter, tell me if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Well, for the, the book that I wrote, I, I created a, a website. It's just my name, cartercast.com. And on that site, there's a, a whole bunch of information about the book, and you can take the derailment test. But also, I loaded it with resources just to try to be useful. So I'd point them there. Awesome. And do you have a final challenge or a call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yes. I would say every day when you reflect on the day, what's the nugget you've picked up? Try to capture it because so much of what we learn we don't codify and capture. So I think one of the challenges is we live in these fast-paced lives is taking the time to reflect and capture your learnings. So whether you journal or dictaphone, some Evernote, whatever, some app, whatever tools you use, I personally like the feeling of a pen and a piece of paper. So I've gone through about, I'm, I think I'm on my 23rd journal now. I just like to capture what I'm learning and then figure out a way to codify it into a behavior of some sort. So I would challenge people, what have you learned today? Capture it someplace so it doesn't escape into the ether. Beautiful. Thank you. Carter, thank you so much for sharing this perspective. I just have so much to think about. It's like if I, I'm quieter than normal <laughs> because this is so much good stuff to chew on. So so thank you for, for bringing it. And, and I wish you lots of luck with uh, your book, uh, The Right and Wrong Stuff, and your teaching and investments and, and all you're up to. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Wow. I thought that was so powerful. Talk about being awesome at your job. Carter just laid it out. Three things. Are you driving projects to completion? Are you enrolling others in what you're up to and doing, getting that support? And are you prudently aware of your strengths and weaknesses and trying to take on projects and, and learn and grow appropriately with that? So that'll do it to become awesome at your job. Not 20 things, three things, potent stuff. Again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to items you've referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F262. I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll hear from our next guest. It's Scott Gerber. He's talking about becoming a super connector. So I hope to catch you there. And peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.